1: Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. And in this episode, we are returning to a topic that is central to both presidential candidates' platforms, namely whether globalization is good for American workers. In 2018, President Trump scrapped NAFTA and met with the leaders of Mexico and Canada to negotiate a new plan, now known as the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement. President argues this plan will protect intellectual property and give American workers a leg up in the global economy. Congress approved the plan earlier this year. Likewise, the Biden Made in All of America plan will push for legislation to strengthen workers' power to negotiate higher wages and better benefits while investing in American-produced goods and services with the goal of bringing production back from overseas. And in the face of coronavirus, could these plans be helped or hindered by a global pandemic? Two years ago, four debaters took to our stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival to debate the motion Globalization Has Undermined American Workers. And on this Labor Day weekend, we are revisiting that debate. So let's hear it. America's working class has been cheated. That is an assertion that has been getting a lot of currency lately. Our last presidential election went deep on that claim in both parties by the way. And the culprit most often blamed for that, it's that monstrous five syllable word, globalization, the philosophy and the practice of free trade which has been great For companies and for shareholders, but has had a devastating impact, it is argued, on the American working woman and man. Well, economists do agree that in the past four decades, the American working class, which we're defining tonight as people who lack a four-year college degree, they have seen flat wages and a steady disappearance of good jobs. But is globalization a main reason that that's happening to those workers? And for those workers, is globalization entirely bad? Well, we think this has the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement globalization has undermined America's working class. I'm John Donvan, and I stand between two teams of two experts in this topic who will argue for and against this resolution. Globalization Has Undermined America's Working Class. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our live audience here at the St. Regis Hotel in Aspen, Colorado, where we are appearing in partnership with the Aspen Ideas Festival, will choose the winner. And as always, if all goes well, civil discourse will also win. Our resolution, once again, Globalization Has Undermined America's Working Class. Jared Bernstein, you have debated with us before, so welcome back. Uh, You're a senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. You were... Vice President Joe Biden's chief economist, the last time you debated with us, interestingly, Jason Furman, who is your opponent at the other table tonight, was your debate partner. As a team, you were formidable. Formidable. I almost want to use the French pronunciation. Formidable. Formidable. Yeah. So are you planning to use your insider's knowledge of
2: Jason's debate I strategies th- against uh, him tonight? Yeah, I very much am. The way to do that with Jason is to make a lot of sports analogies because they <laughs> really confuse him. LAUGHTER <laughs> All right. Thank you. And I see you you brought a tie to Aspen. You wore a tie to Aspen. Well, I think the guy with the tie is the guy you want to listen to, but I'll let
1: you decide that. All right. Thanks very much, Jared Bernstein. Can you tell us who your partner is?
2: This is someone I've known for 25 years. Uh, she's a dear friend of mine, and I consider her my mentor in this topic, Thea Lee.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Thea Lee. Theo, welcome uh, to Intelligence Squared. You're president of the Economic Policy Institute. You've spent two decades as an economist for the AFL-CIO, which is America's largest federation of unions. It represents some 12.5 million working women and men. You've spent 25 years working on trade policy. So what got you interested in trade?
3: Well, when I came to Washington in the early 90s, I got drawn into the NAFTA debate, the North American Free Trade Agreement. And I realized pretty early on that this was not some kind of a dry textbook discussion about tariffs. But it was a transnational battle over democracy, good jobs, workers' rights, and regulation. And so I was hooked.
1: Because a lot's at stake.
3: A lot is at stake.
1: Okay, thanks very much, Thealia. Once again, the team arguing for the motion. And that motion again, globalization, has undermined America's working class. We have two debaters arguing against it. First, Jason Furman. (laughs) Welcome back uh, to Intelligence Square, Jason. You're a professor of the practice of economic policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. You're a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. You were chairman of the Council of Economic Advisers under President Obama, Tonight, as we said, you're going to be debating your former colleague, Jared Bernstein, on the impact of globalization. So is this the
4: first time you two have debated the globalization issue with each other? You know, Jared and I agree on, I'd say, about 95% of economic issues and my goal tonight is to bring it to 100%. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Jason. And can you tell us who your partner is? Uh, someone I've only known for a few years, and every single thing he's ever told me, I have believed. James Manica.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, James Manika. <laughs> James, welcome, first-timer at Intelligence Squared. You're a senior partner at McKinsey & Company. You're the chairman of their economics research arm, the McKinsey Global Institute. Your first time debating with us, but not your first debate. You debated at Oxford. I did. There, you studied robotics and computers. Earlier in your career, you were a visiting scientist at NASA. So how do you go from, it's very eclectic, from robotics and space to thinking about trade policy and American workers?
5: I've always been fascinated by the kinds of technologies that drive innovation and growth, but also affects what real people in the real world actually do. So when you put that together with the economy, these issues around trade and workforce become very, very important. Those are the issues that motivate. What a great
1: perspective to bring here. And once again, thank you. And thank you again to the team arguing against the motion. And so on to the debate. The debate goes in three rounds. We're going into round one. Round one is comprised of opening statements by each debater. In turn, up speaking first for the motion, globalization has undermined America's working class. Here is Thea Lee, president of the Economic Policy Institute.
3: Over the last several decades, the U.S. government, under both Republican and Democratic administrations, embarked on a particular form of global economic integration embodied in the trade agreements like the World Trade Organization and the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The set of rules in these agreements have undermined the bargaining power, the wages, and the democratic voice of America's workers. They've encouraged and rewarded outsourcing over exports, They've shifted the balance of bargaining power toward wealthy and already powerful multinational corporations and away from working people. This form of globalization has contributed substantially to the well-documented growth in inequality and the stagnation of real wages for American workers. This is very much in contrast to the glowing promises made on behalf of these trade agreements by the proponents. These policies have left American workers working harder for less even in a wealthy and innovative country. I spent the last 25 years of my life in the trenches of the trade wars, and I experienced firsthand the inordinate power of corporate lobbyists. Even in otherwise friendly democratic administrations, I was always outnumbered and always outspent by the massive voice of corporations. I am an economist by training, and I know Even in the neoclassical trade model, it's true that there is a real distributional impact of trade, that in a wealthy, skill-intensive, capital-intensive country like the United States, those without a college degree will actually have their wages undercut by trade liberalization. Yet the reason that economists make such a powerful argument in favor of free trade is it is possible to tax the winners and compensate the losers so that everybody comes out ahead. But do we do that? No, we don't even think about doing it. Not only that, but we have doubled down in the other direction. But it's also true that the textbook trade model that assumes perfect competition, full employment, balanced trade, and it assumes away pesky problems like capital mobility, arbitrage against labor and regulation that happens when companies pit governments and workers against each other across national borders, and it assumes away the unfair trade practices by other countries. If you think about trade agreements that make it easier and more profitable for companies to move jobs overseas, they have gained their bargaining power relative to working people who aren't mobile. American workers can't outsource themselves. They need to make a living with a good American job on American soil, whereas their boss can pit them against workers in China or Bangladesh or Mexico and threaten to move the job overseas if they ask too hard for a raise or health care or a pension or a bathroom break or safety goggles or a union. This is the lived reality for so many American workers, the dynamics of power that globalization has exacerbated But let's be clear, our choice is not whether to be in the global economy or not, whether to trade or not to trade, whether capital flows and immigration will happen, but rather, what are the rules that we as a society choose to put in place to regulate these transnational flows, and whom do these rules serve? We've made a series of wrong policy choices over the last 25 years, flawed trade and investment deals that empowered and enriched multinational corporations, leaving behind domestic producers, workers, and communities. We need to recognize we have mismanaged globalization in the past so that we can improve our policy choices in the future. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Thiele. And that is our resolution. Globalization has undermined America's working class and here to make his opening statement against the motion, Jason Furman, professor at the Harvard Kennedy School, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. Ladies and gentlemen, Jason Furman.
4: Thank you so much, Since the end of World War II, global trade volumes has increased 40-fold. But those trade agreements are only a part of the process of globalization. An even bigger part has been the invention of containers that you can put on ships and make it much cheaper to ship goods, the invention of the internet, which allows more coordination across borders, the widening of the Panama Canal, and a whole bunch of other developments, as well as the fact that tariffs have come down 75% from what they were at the end of World War II. Taken together, that process of globalization has left the working class in America on net better off. If instead of everything I just described, we'd kept tariffs where they were in 1945, we hadn't built out America's ports, but we put rocks in the harbors, and we had never invented the container, the working class would be much worse off today than they are. Globalization has, on net, been good. Not for everyone, not managed perfectly, many problems, when I was in the White House, they told us, never talk about the consumer benefits of trade because it sounds like you're willing to sacrifice jobs so that people can buy cheap underwear. biggest problem we have in our economy, though, is wages. And if you can buy more with an hour's work, that means you've got a pay increase. That means you've got a raise. Right now in America, there's 325 million people that buy imported products. On average, a recent study in a leading economics journal found they're 8% better off because of the imported goods that they buy. Not everyone benefits the same amount from trade. At the 10th percentile, your benefit is 67%. At the median, it's about 35%. Why so much larger? Because you're spending a lot more money on things like clothing that are imported So there has been, on the consumption side, something that I would not sneer at, demean or rush past, but enormously important to the purchasing power of 325 million Americans. Now let's talk about what it means for workers. There's 14 million Americans that work in export industries. On average, they get paid 18% more than other workers. We did research that just based on the increase in the export share over the last two decades, the typical working class workers getting an extra $1,300 from that opportunity in industries that are higher paid, better jobs than the ones that we are losing. That's just exports. Of course, globalization is more than that. There's massive capital flows, and $4 trillion has been invested from abroad in the United States. There's nothing in economics that says that trade benefits everyone. It has winners and losers. That whole process of greater integration has benefited the working class, leaves them better off, and without it, they'd be worse off. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Jason Furman. Jason Furman, Harvard professor and economic advisor to President Obama, arguing against the motion, globalization has undermined America's working class. Have wages kept pace with productivity? And a reminder of where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion. Globalization has undermined America's working class. You have heard from the first two debaters, and now on to the third. Debating for the motion, here is Jared Bernstein, Senior Fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, former Chief Economist to Vice
2: President Joe Biden. Jared Bernstein. I mean, uh, yes, I have uh, a sore throat. I feel much better than I sound. If it helps, pretend you're listening to Barry White. Uh, it helps our side. But I apologize for that. Expanded trade has thrown the working class into much more competition than they experienced before trade with lower-wage countries took off. Now, economic theory, and I'm quoting the uh, trade economist Danny Roderick here, predicts that low-skilled workers are unambiguously worse off as a result of trade liberalization. This notion that production workers in richer countries lose out when trade expands with poorer countries is not a special case of a particular model. Roderick says, and I'm quoting again, this is standard economic fare familiar to all trade economists, even if not voiced too loudly in the public. Our openness to trade uh, has basically tripled over the last four decades as the stagnation has set in. But prior to the period of expanded trade, working class compensation doubled along with productivity growth. Since the period of expanded trade, working class compensation has grown only 12% while productivity is up 74%. So 74% on productivity, 12% over 45 years. Now I say inflation adjusted, and that's a very important point because again, Jason was talking about the price effects. They're built in to this real compensation calculation. It takes account of those gains. Had working class compensation kept up with productivity over the period of expanded trade, it would have been $15 per hour higher. And that translates into $30,000 a year more for working class workers. In the period before trade expanded, their paycheck grew 3% per year consistently from the late 40s to the mid-70s. Since then, it has grown 0%, again, over 45 years. In fact, the real wage of a blue-collar manufacturing worker was about 22 bucks in today's dollars in 1973, all inflation-adjusted, so price effects from trade are embedded in these calculations. Last month, it was a dollar lower. It was $21 per hour, and that's 45 years later. Now, you might be thinking, all well, of these are completely different groups of workers, and of course, they are, but that just further bolsters our argument. These workers are more experienced, they're more highly educated, they're more productive, and yet they earn less. Their living standards have been undermined. Next, there's the evidence of the China shock. Careful analysis finds that the sharp increase in imbalanced trade with China in the 2000 explains about 40% of the job losses in factory jobs in those years. That's about a million jobs in manufacturing. It is obvious to us that technology facilitates globalization, which brings us right back to this institutional context within which both technology and globalization are taking place. And we're left with two opposing propositions. One, expanded trade puts large groups of American workers into global competition, which hurts their living standards. And two, even with those losses, increased trade is in the aggregate pro-growth, as our opposition has, has stated. And the contention that holds them together is that the benefits of increased trade are such that the winners can compensate the losers and still come out ahead. But just because the winners can compensate the losers doesn't mean that they're going to do so. In our economy, not only do those who benefit the most from trade fail to compensate the losers, they use their winnings in the context of our pay-to-play politics to buy the politicians and the policies that will further protect them and enhance their winnings. They don't help the losers of trade. They hurt them. And in that sense, they undermine the middle class. Thank you. Thank you, Jared Bernstein.
1: And that motion again, globalization has undermined America's working class. Here to make his opening statement against the motion, James Manika. He is chairman and director of the McKinsey Global Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, James Manika.:
5: So if you and your nine friends worked in apparel manufacturing in 2000, uh, a decade later, only three of you have jobs. You lost them. In fact, if you worked in a textile mill, again, you and your nine friends, in 2000, today only three of you have a job. It is the case that those jobs have gone overseas. In fact, if you actually look at particular communities, uh, if you are living, for example, in Webster County Mississippi, where apparel manufacturing was the dominant economic activity in that county, something like a third of the jobs disappeared overseas. So it is the case that, in fact, these have been very deep impacts in these local communities. So if the question is, have any American working-class members been impacted by globalization, the answer is clearly yes, because these are real people. It has actually happened. But if it's also the question is, have we done enough to assist those workers transition, get skills, and deal with the difficulty of that impact, we have not done enough. Wage income inequality wage stagnation, rising costs of living, all of that is absolutely true. But I think it's important to come back to what's actually on the table in the proposition we're debating. Has globalization been the key reason why the working class Americans have suffered? That's where Jason and I have a different point of view. Globalization has actually benefited the working class. If we are talking about the working class across America, who are they? There's about 75 million of them out of roughly the 125 million workers who are in the non-farm sector in the economy. So it's about 60% of people working in the economy. It's a big part. The majority of them don't work in these directly traded sector. In fact, by various estimates, the, the proportion of the working class Americans who work in these traded sectors that face globalization is about 20%. The rest are working in other places, they're working in retail, they're working in a whole bunch of other places. So we, we need to be very clear about what proportion of Americans in the working class are directly facing the impacts of globalization. They're also consumers. These are families who are trying to earn a living. A big portion of what they spend money on is purchasing traded products, goods and services, whether they themselves work in the traded sector or not. It doesn't matter, but they're purchasing these products and services. Quite often, we end up conflating what's happened with the working-class Americans generally with what's happened to, in particular, the manufacturing or traded sectors specifically. I think if we are asking the question, what's happened to the working-class Americans, it's important we actually think about, who are the real culprits? Are we scapegoating globalization or not? Let's take manufacturing, which is often the epicenter of a lot of these points that are made. And you look at the job losses we've had, most careful studies, when they try to attribute what proportion of the jobs we've lost in manufacturing have been lost to offshoring or jobs being sent away, the estimates typically range between about 13 and about, the highest I've seen is 33%. Our own work suggests it's 20%. Some other careful work has been quoted by Jared, by David Archer and others, has a number that's in the 20-something percent. No one is saying it was 90%. So if offshoring and globalization wasn't the reason, what are the other reasons? One of them is technology and automation. A lot of routinized tasks have actually started to get automated. I, I studied robotics, and I do a lot of that work, and you can see it. In fact, the question I would ask often is pick any factory that's been built in the last five years anywhere in the world and go look to see how many people work there. It doesn't matter where it is, not very many. So what we're doing in terms of automation, automating how factories and manufacturing plants work has had a big impact on this. There are lots of countries that have trade surpluses in manufacturing sectors, whether it's Germany and others. If you actually look at what's happened, so take automotive sector, for example. I'm sorry,
1: your time is up, but thank you very much. we we'll continue. So that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Now we move on to round two, and in round two, the debaters address one another directly and they take questions from me and then from you, our live audience, here in Aspen. The team arguing for the motion, Thea Lee and Jared Bernstein, they say it is dishonest to say that free trade is good for all, all of the time, that the working class is working harder for less, and yes, globalization is to blame, that it has thrown them into a much more intense competition than they've ever experienced before, that it has led to a loss of their bargaining power, a loss of voice, a loss of wages. They point to uh, one group of blue-collar workers whose real wage in ni- 1973 was $22. Now it's $21. The nation might be doing well, but the winners, if they have the chance to compensate the losers, they don't seem to be doing so. The team arguing against the motion, James Manika and Jason Furman, uh, they concede absolutely that the working class is struggling, but they say that globalization is not the main driver of that, In fact, they make the argument that on net, the working class is better off today. And they say on the consumer side, you have to look at the fact that imported goods cost less than they would otherwise. And that puts more money into people's pockets, regardless of what class they're in, but actually benefits the working class more because they're the ones who would be buying those goods. And they also point out that there are other culprits uh, impacting the working class, such as technology and automation. So we're going to peel back some of those ideas that we heard there. And uh, James, you can also uh, get to the things that you weren't able to get to. But I wanna start with a question to the side arguing for the motion, uh, Jared and Thea. Your opponents made the point that only 20% of those who comprise the working class are actually exposed to the impact of globalization directly. That takes 80% right. of the people off the table. Because What's your response They work in traded sectors. Okay. This is the work. Of We're proof. ready for that one. Okay. <laughs> so who would like to take it? Thea?
3: I'll start. Because you work in a traded sector doesn't mean you're walled off from people in the service sector. The labor market I, is fungible. Can I say one second yes. for our
1: podcast listeners and for people like myself who are just not as smart as you guys. The term traded sector, just so we completely understand what that means.
3: Goods or services that are traded across boards. So it could be either exports or import competing.
1: Okay, things that you put on a ship or a plane that go to another part of the world. Okay.
3: So the traded sector may only be 20%, but all those workers who are seeing their wages bid down and eroded in the traded sector... If they lose their jobs, let's say a steel worker laid off because his company moved overseas, is going to go and compete for a job at Walmart, going to put downward pressure on the wages in Walmart. And the other thing that's also important in terms of spillover effect, that this is one labor market, but also as you decimate a community, because let's say the factory closes and people are laid off and they don't have money to pay taxes anymore, so that is also going to undermine the public sector. So we're really connected to each other in this economy.
1: Okay, James, what about that response, that there's not a wall between those two groups of people, that the impacts uh, bleed Across those lines.
5: Globalization has added about $2 trillion to GDP growth in the United States. That benefits all workers and creates economic growth and dynamism in the economy. When trade happens, money flows here too. So, for example, foreign direct investment that comes here is supporting somewhere about 12 million workers. But to look at just one piece of it, which is workers leaving Traded sectors, going to other places, doesn't look at the net. Jared Bernstein.
2: Yeah, Thea and I both underscore and agree that trade can be pro-growth. It's like, well, whose economy are you talking about? Because we have a very serious distributional problem in this country. So you can't just hold out GDP growth in a debate about whether the working class is undermined by trade when I've just recited a set of statistics showing that, in fact, their hourly wage has been zero in terms of growth for 40 years. And this gets to one of my main objections. You know, trade enables people to buy a lot of cheap stuff. No question, that's true. But that's reflected in the real calculations of the wage story and the income story
4: that we're telling. So real incomes have not grown, they've been flat, or they've fallen. I I think there is way too much inequality in this country. If you look at the top 1%, it gets about... The top 1% today gets about 20% of the income. One thing Jared's been doing is he's been referring to the period 1973 to the present. From 1973 to 1990, there was very little growth of trade with developing countries. The growth of trade over that period was with countries just as rich as the United States, and we were selling things like cars back and forth to each other, the same type of stuff. Since 2000, trade with developing countries has exploded, particularly trade with China. Now let's go back to that top 1% share. It doubled before China entered the WTO from about 9% to about 20%. Since then, it's risen by one percentage point. If you look at it after taxes and transfers, share of the top 1% has fallen by 1%. Economists who study inequality widely know that the fastest period of increasing inequality was in the 1980s, when we weren't trading very much with Mexico. We were trading barely at all. Let me break in for a second,
1: because there was a piece of what Jared said that I was hoping you were going to respond to. Your claim that if you can buy a lot of cheap stuff, you're better off. He says
4: that idea is blown up by the fact that that's accounted for in real wages. And I want to know that he just blew up your argument. No. One, I think correctly measured, real wages are higher. The idea that people are worse off materially than they were in the early 1970s, I think, is absurd if you look at the set of material goods that people have today compared to then. But second of all, even if they were, that doesn't prove it was trade. That's what I was just getting at, John, that the period of expanded trade with developing countries is not the same as the period of very rapidly rising inequality. And if some sense, that calls into question Jared's causal link between trade and the uh, statement of the. Okay, the, the hourly, hourly
2: wage numbers are as I recited them. That's not controversial. And James, if you use CPI, James acknowledged searches. that. The reason why middle income families have higher incomes now in many cases, is not because they have more wage growth than I've said. I've just given you the statistics. It's because they're working a lot more hours. They've compensated for stagnant wages with more hours of work. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. A lot of that comes from more women in the workforce, which is a very positive advance. But the wage stagnation is a real factor that's at the heart of our case for undermining the middle class. Now, the 1980s was a period of large negative trade deficits that put our manufacturers in competition with workers in other countries who weren't necessarily from developing countries, I agree with Jason's point there, but we were on the losing side of that competition, as is demonstrated by the uh, trade imbalances of that period.
5: Again, this is part of the issue we have, having. we keep conflating The stagnant wage story with globalization. We know that, for example, the labor share of GDP has been falling across advanced economies, including the United States. Half of that is probably technology. The portion of that that's only attributable to trade is at best a quarter. The other factor is productivity. So for a very long time, we used to count on the fact that whenever we had productivity growth, you'd have wage growth. That has not been as true recently as it's been historically. So I want to take
1: that point to the Thea. Point. To, to respond to your opponent's argument, it's other things. Other things are causing this technology that I think anybody can understand, automation, etc. It's not just globalization.
3: Well, it isn't just globalization, but the question isn't, whether globalization is the only factor, it is whether globalization has undermined the American working class. A lot of factors that happen at the same time, the technological innovation, the attacks on unions, regressive changes in the task code, the failure of American business to invest in infrastructure and in skills. But a lot of those things, what I would argue is you can't separate them. Even if you look at trade and technology, cheap imports are flooding. One response is going to be to automate. And so you can't take apart automation and globalization so easily. And also, I would argue that multinational corporations have used the power and the wealth they got from trade agreements and globalization, they use that power to attack unions and to undermine uh, minimum wage and to erode living standards in a whole slew of ways.
1: I do think it's true that the sense of this resolution is not that only globalization has, but that globalization has significantly. And I think your argument is that
4: workers today would be worse off without globalization. Globalization brings benefits. Globalization brings costs. The study by David Otter, et al., that Jared cited, excellent economists, 2.4 million manufacturing jobs lost to China from 1999 to 2011. The way they did that study was they looked at local areas and figured out which areas got more imports. And the ones that got more imports lost jobs. Another economist, the head of the National Bureau of Economic Research Trade Programs, used that exact same thing, but he looked at local areas that increased exports and asked what happened to jobs there. And then he added up the two, came out 700,000 jobs ahead because of trade. So absolutely, 2.4 million jobs lost to imports to China. At the same time, many million more created due to U.S. exports elsewhere. The imports went up 886%. Let's let's let your opponents respond to some more.
2: there There are clearly benefits
4: to global trade
2: for everybody who takes their wallet out and goes shopping in whatever class you're in. Our point is that under the trade regime that Thea described in her opening statement, we have undermined the working class such that their bargaining power, their compensation, their democratic voice has been damaged.
1: Jared Bernstein, former chief economist to Vice President Joe Biden, arguing, with a sore throat by the way, for the motion, globalization has undermined America's working class. Are the gains of free trade worth the costs? Coming up, questions from the audience and closing statements when the debate continues here on Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. Now we go back to round two, and James Manyika, director of McKinsey Global Institute, arguing against the motion, globalization has undermined America's working class.
5: What is changing over the last 30, 40 years in the American economy in a way that impacts workers? The amount that we invest in skills and training has actually been declining for a very, very long time. So we've done things like reduce our investments in skills and training the career pathways, skills, and ability of those people to do well has dramatically diminished. All these are the factors that, in fact, probably affect larger numbers of workers. Because again, 11% of the American workforce works in manufacturing, 20% work in traded sectors. There's a much larger economy out there that ordinary Americans are working in where they're not facing these things directly. Doesn't theater, work for the
3: And yet, travel around the country and go to those areas of the country where manufacturing used to be a prime mover. The kind of trade, the kind of globalization that we have engaged in, and globalization, I'm going to define it as the set of rules around trade, international investment, immigration. What the policy choices we made as a country? And I think it is important to say that going forward, we can make a different set of choices. That's the argument I would make. I wouldn't say we need to stop trading we need to stop investing, that is idiotic. What we can say is that as a country, we have to make a different set of choices because the choices we made have hurt working people, they have undermined their bargaining power, we have written these trade agreements that have imbalanced power, Towards multinational corporations. They wanted to use these trade agreements as a way of arbitraging governments against each other and workers against each other. And they succeeded. And the outcome has been that we undermined America's working class with the kind of globalization that we put in place. I I want
1: to go to Ani. Oh, oh, can I talk a little bit about...
4: So let's talk about manufacturing for a second. It's declined enormously. It's also declined, by the way, in China. It's declined in Germany, in the Netherlands. It's declined just about everywhere. I'm talking about employment right now. Employment peaked in 1979. Does anyone know when manufacturing production peaked? 2018. We're producing more than we've ever produced before with fewer people. In fact, if you look at the shrinking of the manufacturing sector... In the 24 years before NAFTA, we lost 11 percentage points of our manufacturing sector. In the 24 years since NAFTA, China's entry into the WTO and the like, that reduction has been at a slower pace. It's been at seven percentage points a year. If we got rid of our manufacturing deficit entirely, our manufacturing share of employment would be one percentage point higher, and that's assuming... That it didn't get hurt by all of the inputs to our manufacturing sector okay. that we get from abroad. I'm going to go to questions now. Are, is one of you like
1: dying to respond to that? Because that was a I really wanted,
2: well-made <clears throat> point, and I, I feel I like wanted to. Um, the U.S. versus Germany. So in the U.S., we have 10% of our workforce in manufacturing. In Germany, they have 20%. If we had another 10% of our workforce in manufacturing, that'd be 15 million more manufacturing jobs. So I don't think those comparisons should leave that difference out, sir. Mark Davis, I'd like you to focus a little bit on the non-economic factors embedded in the word undermined, the opioid crisis, the alienation felt by American workers had a major impact on the last election, sense of alienation from the political system.
1: I'd actually like to also bring into that framework Thea's opening remark that globalization
4: has led to a loss of bargaining power and just power in general for the workers by placing too much weight on globalization, we've made these other problems worse. Because if you think our problem with our trade deficit is caused by China, it's not caused by China, it's caused by mistakes that we make here in the United States. If you get distracted and think that steel tariffs are a way to help American manufacturing as opposed to investing in training, investing in American industry. I think a lot of the protectionist debate has distracted us from the real problems, the real solutions, and made these issues worse. I, can I come back to you with that question? I,
1: I think I heard in that question whether you can draw a nearly straight line between globalization policy and, for example, the opioid crisis. James, no, no,
5: James, take that. There's a tremendous sense of alienation. We just had a massive recession. Financial crisis. Big part of the income stagnation, which explains a lot of it. And then we've also got one of the things about automation, by the way, which I spent a lot of time on. If you look at the occupations that are growing versus ones that are declining, many of the ones that are growing look a lot like care work, and a lot of them don't have great wage structures. Some of it is coming from the occupational shifts that's creating this sense of anxiety. Part of it has also been a bit of a gendered problem, because in fact, Many of the occupations that have declined have mostly been very male-dominated. People who are no longer earning the kinds of incomes that they had. So we have to look at these wider issues and to simply point it at globalization, just because it happened around the same time. Okay, Theo.
3: Put yourself in the shoes of an American worker who's been making a product who is incredibly productive, who is hardworking, and yet his company is going to move his job overseas or her job overseas because there are workers somewhere else who don't have basic human rights. Or maybe even that the company is going to dump the toxic waste straight into the river. And because the rules that we put in place in globalization aren't doing a good job of protecting us, then that is an unfair reason to lose your job. When other countries like China break the rules of the international trade rules, by subsidizing exports, intervening in the market in a way that is unfair, there's no way an American company can survive. And the other thing that I would say in terms of power and alienation is that a lot of American workers feel betrayed by politicians from both the Democratic and the Republican Party, politicians who put in place trade agreements that hurt American workers, that didn't protect their jobs, that didn't protect against unfair trade practices. But I, can I just...
4: One you thing, Jason, and Jared, off yeah. of what Thea just said. She just said when China is breaking the rules... That's because there's actually a set of rules right now that govern things like surges, that govern things like dumping, that govern things like illegal subsidies. Yeah, but we don't and enforce we can, it. And we can act. But we, we, brought, don't. Th- That's we problem. brought We include rules on child labor in trade agreements, and you see big improvements in child them? labor in the countries. Those have become more enforceable. TPP had enforceable in a way that NAFTA wasn't. Jared, very quickly, because okay, I want to get one question. Quick. I'm pretty shocked by uh, Jason's
2: claim that globalization actually contributed to the well-being of, uh, of the working class. 40% of the manufacturing job losses in the 2000s from the China shock were concentrated, this gets to your question a second ago, were concentrated in geographical areas. Those same authors went back and looked at the political implications and found that it wasn't people like Thea and I making these arguments that gave us Trump. It was exactly the opposite. It was the elitists who wouldn't allow our arguments to be elevated that allowed Trump to surface. Let me go get to one more question before we wrap. And there was a question here.
0: Hi, Susan Lund. <laughs> um, I'd like to talk about services trade, that a lot of Americans are employed by foreign companies operating in the U.S. and, in fact, export from the U.S.
2: Thank you. Great question. And we have a surplus in services, is what you were saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: I don't think there's a, a problem with that and that it is, I think, one of the areas in which the U.S. does have a comparative advantage, so to speak, which is that we do a very good job. Also, you know, incoming foreign investment. I have no argument with incoming foreign investment. I have no argument with trade and services. The question is whether we're regulating it appropriately, whether we have the right set of rules in place.
1: James, last word for you.
5: Jared keeps citing this careful study that I think is referring to the work that David Otter and and David Dorn did. Uh, I'm struck by a particular quote that I've just found I'm going to read to you by David Otter. He says, over time, automation has had a far bigger effect than globalization and would have eventually eliminated those jobs anyway in the long run. So I think we underestimate the impact of automation in particular, especially so if we care about the American working class. Let's look ahead a bit. What's automation and technology going to do to the workforce over the next decade or two? If we're going to fix things, if we care about the American working class, let's focus on the big problems and the big questions, the structure of how our corporations work, the structure of how we treat our workers, the way in which technology is going to have an impact. I can quickly... That's where we should spend time.
2: Thea and I do not disagree that automation and technology are in the mix, and we're not arguing that they don't undermine the working class as well, although I think it's much less visibly understandable to workers themselves who recognize that when the factory went to Mexico, they, their family, and their community were worse off. And I haven't heard any argument from the other side that
1: contradicts that. I was going to have to save that for closing rounds because that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is globalization has undermined America's working class. And now we move on to our closing round. It is very brief. It's closing statements by each debater in turn. Here to make her closing statement in support of the motion, Feely.
3: In the 2016 election, Donald Trump surfaced a real issue that resonated with a lot of voters who had felt abandoned by the elite of both political parties and unheard. Jared and I, and a broad coalition of environmental and consumer and social justice advocates, have been pounding this issue for many decades. And even though Donald Trump was an unlikely flag-bearer for this issue, he's an outsourcing billionaire. He sounded angry, and he sounded sincere. But in the end, President Trump's actual trade policy has been ham-handed, erratic, and inconsistently messaged. He has alienated key trading partners rather than coordinating an effective, coherent, long-term global strategy with them. His trade and immigration agenda... Is encased in a toxic sludge of racism and xenophobia. And his domestic policies demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that he doesn't give a fig about American workers. But it's important for us to be honest tonight. He filled a vacuum. But this gives us an opportunity to recognize that our trade policy has utterly failed the American working class for many decades. We need to build an alternative vision and policy from the bottom up, true to our American principles and values. And we need domestic policies like full employment, stronger unions, labor protections, and investment in infrastructure and skills, and a tax code that will support that kind of investment. We can't get to that new policy until we're honest about the failure of the old one. Globalization has failed the American working class. Thank you so much.
1: Lee, President of the Economic Policy Institute. Our resolution again. Globalization has undermined America's working class. Here making his closing statement against the motion. Jason Furman, Professor at the Harvard
4: Kennedy School, former Chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. The United States is not the only country that's experienced globalization. 50% of Denmark's economy is tradable, 40% of Sweden's, and they have very high levels of unionization, low levels of inequality, great supports for workers. What we've talked about in the course of this debate is the failure of American domestic economic policy, not the failure of trade. Because what globalization gave us was those better jobs that outnumbered the number of jobs that were lost, according to the most careful research. They gave us lower prices. They put power in the hands of the large majority who benefit, rather than the small, connected set of lobbyists who use their power to get tariffs for their favorite industries. I agree that Donald Trump tapped into a lot of things in America, He tapped into it by blaming foreigners, by blaming immigrants for our crime here in America, by demonizing others when the problems are actually our own and our own economic policies. And I want to end by talking about one person that voted for Donald Trump, a guy named Mike Lang from a small town in Pennsylvania, Farrell, Pennsylvania, who works in the steel industry. And he believed that Donald Trump would bring back steel jobs. Then Donald Trump put tariffs on steel. What happened to Mike Lang? He's about to lose his job because his company is owned by a foreign steel company, one of those investors in the United States. They rely on semi-finished imported steel that then they roll up and sell to Caterpillar and Harley Davidson. He's the consummate beneficiary of globalization, foreign investment, selling on to others who are in turn exporting. He now says he never would have voted for Trump if he had known that Trump was going to destroy his job in steel. Jason Furman, I'm sorry. Of workers I'm sorry your impulse. time
1: is up. Thank you very much, Jason Furman. The resolution again globalization has undermined America's working class. Here, making his closing statement in support of the motion, Jared Bernstein, Senior Fellow, at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, former Chief Economist to Vice Biden.
2: President Joe Biden. A lot of what Jason just said resonated with me, except for the disconnect between what goes on in this country and what goes on in Denmark or Scandinavia. There's no question in my mind that we have the potential in this country for a globalization that is beneficial to the working class. But there's also no question in my mind that globalization, the way it's implemented in this country, has been extremely damaging for the working class. And I've been having these arguments for decades, trying to elevate the damage that trade has done to the middle class. Now, it's not the only factor that's hurt the middle class, but it's certainly a highly visible one. When I talk about the manufacturing wage as stagnating for 40 years in real terms, building in the price effects from trade, I'm talking about a sector that is very much exposed to global competition when i was in the white house we used to have this argument all the time i remember coming out of a meeting once with vice president biden about 14 other people on the other side and biden hung his head when we got back to his office and he said that's one of the things i hate about washington and i think what he was saying is that there's people in these debates who are in such denial about trades downsides that they can't see what's under their nose to the extent that they're willing to even recognize the negative trends they talk about the inevitable costs of free trade and transition. Vote for us to support the motion so that we can end this denial about the downsides of globalization and work our way towards a trade policy that lifts our middle class, not hurts them. Thank Thank you, Thank you, Jared Bernstein.
1: That resolution again, globalization has undermined America's working class. Here making his closing against the motion, James Manica, Chairman and Director of the McKinsey Global Institute.
5: I think we've established that both sides, we all care about what's happening to the American working class. And we're not happy with what's happened over the last 20, 30 years. I think we can all agree on that. The motion was not about whether the way America has implemented NAFTA or a particular trade agreement is done right or not. The motion is globalization as it undermined the working class or not. It's been happening for a very long time, even before NAFTA. We're debating the principle of globalization, the idea of globalization, not how we implement it. If we look to the future, much of the economic growth in the world is going to happen elsewhere. If you look at the sheer number of people in the world who are now in the consuming class, who are going to be consuming products and services, they're not in the United States. The vast majority of them are elsewhere. Do we really want to close ourselves off from those opportunities? for our workers. If ever there was a time for the United States to be looking out into the world and engaging with the world is now. The power of technology is interesting. Technology is changing the role that you know, we play in our value chain, 3D printing, innovation, the use of digitization and so forth. That, in fact, in many cases, actually bringing many of those jobs back here. We will not want to take advantage of those opportunities and look forward and encourage American innovation to engage the rest of the world and drive economic growth. I'm not quite sure we want to do that. So I think what we should be talking about is how do we address the issues that are affecting the working class and fix the problems that we've found in how we've implemented globalization as opposed to turning the clock back. Many of the barriers we're putting up at this moment seem to be turning the clock back. And I think that's a mistake. Thank you, Thank you. James Manuke. And
1: that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared US debate. And now it's time to learn which side has been most persuasive. In the first vote on globalization has undermined America's working class, 36% agreed, 45% were against, 19% were undecided. Those are the first results. In the second vote, the team arguing for the motion globalization has undermined America's working class. First vote, 36%. Second vote, 32%. They lost. Four percentage points. The team against the motion, their first vote was 45%. Their second vote, 61%. They pulled up 16 percentage points. Victory goes to the team arguing against the motion. Globalization has undermined America's working class. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared US. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was presented in partnership with the Aspen Ideas Festival and held in front of a live audience at the St. Regis Hotel in Aspen, Colorado. Robert Rosenkrantz is our chairman. Clea Chang is our chief operating officer. Leah Mathow is vice president of programming. Shea O'Mara is manager of editorial operations. Aaron Dalton and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. You can now stream all of our debates on demand on Apple TV and Roku devices with the IQ2US app. For more information or to buy tickets to future events, please visit IQ2US.org. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from David A. Coulter, Robert Epstein, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, Jennifer and Philippe Selendi, the Paul E. Singer Foundation, Edward Stern and Stephanie Rain, and Emily and Antoine Van Achtmill. From Intelligence Squared U.S. and me, John Donnelly.